0: to This episode of the Culture and Inequality podcast. My name is Giselinde Kuipers, and today I'm talking to Ahmad Moucharek and Julian Schaap. Ahmad and Julian, can you briefly introduce yourself, please?
1: Hi, Giselinde. Uh, glad to be here. I'm Ahmad Moucharek. I am a uh, professor in anthropology of science at the Department of Anthropology at the University of Amsterdam, and I usually work on issues of race and science in diverse settings.
0: Thank you. Welcome, Julian.
2: Hi, Gieselinde and Maat. So yeah, I'm Julian Schaap. I uh, am an assistant professor in the sociology of music at the Erasmus University, Rotterdam. And here I predominantly focus on uh, studying inequalities in the production and reception of music. And I specifically focus on gender inequalities and ethno-racial inequalities.
0: Thank you. Welcome, Julian. Uh, So today we're talking about race, racialization and racism. Race is the dimension of inequality that is perhaps most pervasive and omnipresent, not only within societies like Dutch society, but also on a global scale. Yet at the same time, it's the one that's most difficult to talk about. Even the word itself, race, is fraught. Should we even use this term? And if we use it, can we do this while paying heed to the huge variations in how racial categories are understood and how it works across time and place? How can we talk about race without making it seem like a fixed, real thing? We talk about this with two scholars who've engaged with racialization in two domains, race keeps resurfacing, even when we think we have finally gotten rid of it, music and forensics. So today we ask, following Ahmad's clue, how is race done in practice? And how does this create or perpetuate social inequalities? So, as always, we start with a surprise question. Uh, So a question that the guests are not prepared for. And the question today is about words. So as I said, uh, even finding the right words when talking about race already is difficult. So what are the words that you use when talking about race? So what what are good words? And what are the words that make you cringe, that you really don't want to use at all? Uh, and how should we go about this? So, Amad. This, this is really a vital question. So, thank you for
1: this surprising one. Um, so, I, I think it also pertains to languages and traditions. So, for example, I I feel rather comfortable using race in the English language. Uh, and that has to do with the history of race and racism and anti-racism in, uh, in the U.S. and probably also in, in the U.K., to a certain extent so race has been tackled and racism has been tackled and there is this distinction or this notion of race as a social construction um uh, uh, so there is this common understanding of it as as such and so race as a social construction race as a way of doing identity has also been embraced by uh, uh, many minorities in the united states also to fight for the rights of um, of belonging to that nation right and, uh, and this is the problem in Europe, I would say, in continental Europe. So where race, race, or race or, or in German, uh, is really uh, um, yeah, tightly connected, I would say, to race science. So to to this 19th centuries and and, and before, history of doing race and classifying people, which has been more and more, I mean, it was not just biology, but has been biologized uh, immensely. So for us, when we speak about Russ, it is really a biological distinction. And and also, you know, given the social movements, we have not, well, we have not been very (laughs) Actively engaged in anti racism, as we know. So, uh, we, we don't have that good a vocabulary to talk about differences. So, I'm very um, cautious when it comes to using uh, race in the Dutch language in, in its translation, so to speak.
0: Yes, so the we you are talking about here are the Dutch speakers, yes, or the Europeans, Europeans.
1: Du- and, and and Dutch, I would say. Uh, but I, I would say it it holds for the whole continental Europe that this this notion of race does not really um, have a place in in common language in everyday language.
0: Mm-hmm. So to summarize, so you feel okay with race, but Ras, the Dutch version makes you cringe.
1: Yes, although I'm really happy now in the, in the United States that the, the, the uh, use of race is becoming more and more an issue of debate there as well. Mm-hmm. So that it is not all that innocent, that you cannot really sort of um, um, distinguish or, or, or di- separate between uh, social aspects of race and the word race and its biological sort of origins of sorts.
2: Yeah, I think this is indeed a really good question, and I and I agree with uh, Ahmad uh, on this. I, I think for me, um, I actually don't, when I was thinking about your question, like, do I cringe when I hear, hear certain words being used? I, I don't think so. I was trying to like, think of moments that happened like that, because I think for me, uh, what happened in my own uh, sort of learning experience, thinking about race, uh, ethnicity, racism, um, is that, actually I I was looking for words to discuss it and to describe it. And this is something that I see with students as well, that they often um, don't find the words to talk about this and that they're struggling and that they actually start like kind of stuttering and sort of uh, have a loss of words that they usually don't really have when they talk about something like gender, for instance. So at some point I thought, I think it's better that people at least try to find words to talk about it than to completely ignore it. And this is also in line with with all these uh, studies done in, on uh, colorblind racism, for instance, that it's more important probably to be kind of color conscious, a, a race or ethnicity conscious, to try and find the words for it and to accept that we will never have any kind of fixed definition of the 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 words that we use and that the words that we use today may not be the words that we use in the future. And I think this is also kind of my uh, approach to it, that I think let's find the best words that we have right now, but keep an open mind about how this may change uh, in the future.
0: Okay, so thank you. So I hope that this is something we can discuss in this podcast to find the right words to talk about this, because indeed I too find sometimes find it difficult to think what the right words are. So in order to do this, collected a number of uh, articles. Uh, So one recent research article by Ahmad on tentacular faces. Uh, And Ahmad also uh, suggested a 2007 review article by Nadia Abu Ahaj. Uh, and Julian suggested excerpts from what really is a classic, the path breaking work of Philomena said on Everyday Racism. So, Ahmad, could you briefly introduce your own article and also the article by Abu hey, Ahmad? Um, uh, maybe I'll start with the article of uh, Nadia Bulhaj, because
1: um, that was really, for me, a very important article where I saw that in this U.S. discourse on, on, on race, I mean, as, as you probably all know, the discourse on race, specifically when it comes to my field of research, right, so science and technology, it's really U.S. dominated. And, and so there is very little on what is going on in Europe and also how to conceptualize race in uh, in Europe. So when I read this uh, review article, as uh, um, it is, uh, it was the, the first article in the U.S. setting that really put a question mark behind what race is so it is an article that, that tr- tries to open up uh, a race by uh, looking into the history of race science and uh, not taking this uh, disruption after the second world war too seriously saying well there is a kind of a break but it is not that big a break actually uh there's a there's a ongoing resonances and then she takes us to um Uh, to review uh, recent genetic research, uh, post-genomic research, as it is uh, called, uh, and to see how it is that this genetic work is promising individuality. It is promising to know the individual, Let's say for medical reasons, you know, to uh, to provide us with precision medicine that can gives us the medication depending on our own specific personal body and, 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 and diseases. At the same time, this research is actually doing the collective. So it is focusing on diversity among different groups of people. So, what does that do to race then? Where does race come in, and is this a different notion of race than uh, uh, than the, than the ones that has been developed in the in the era of physical anthropology and, and eugenics of so the improvement of the quality of the nation based on biological biological interventions, um, and and. And I think I think she she really provides us with a nice uh, uh, overview and leaves us with many questions. And I think this is important that we do not think you know that we do not strive for closure or or. Um, you know a kind of a conclusive answer to what race is but she 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 invites us to think about it to think about what is it and so this this is maybe also a bridge to my own research Then it is not what is it in general universally but really what is it in specific settings and practices or specific histories um, and I think that my 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 paper that I suggested here, so yes, and importantly in her article, she talks about the reinscription of race at the molecular level. So whereas genetics is saying, well, we can do without race, you know, we are, you know, post-racial, uh, but focusing on differences, they actually re-inscribe race at the molecular level. So at the level of the molecule, namely our DNA. So, and in, in, so race then uh, goes beyond appearances is the promise of uh, genetics. We are not interested in appearances. We are not interested in where you come from. Uh, but at the same time, it is done somewhere else. And what I do in my paper is say, well, uh, yes, there is a molecularization of race. Uh, going on. Yes, we do a lot of genetic research and genetic diversity research, uh, but at the same time, um, I am witnessing or I'm seeing that appearances are becoming more and more important for this very genetic research. So whether we are talking in the medical field or in the field of forensics and um, the, the the phenotype appearances are becoming uh, re-biologized. And, and this is something that I find um, quite uh, interesting and disturbing at the same time because this is, of course, what 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 uh, physical anthropology has been doing all the way, right? Uh, measuring, counting, mapping, taking pictures, comparing appearances, and, and so on and so forth. So in, in 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 this paper of mine, I also try. I start in this history of physical anthropology uh, and with an uh, important uh, uh, prince that has been. Made of faces of different people in the world, in order to find the type, the racial type, in order to learn to know the racial type, and I uh, I, I use this as a kind of a um, learning moment to understand how uh, um, the the appearances and specifically the the, the working of the face, um, uh, how that is actually uh, much more complicated and uh, than we would assume. Uh, and, and also how that can teach us something about how race is being done by focusing on um, uh, appearances and aiming to do the face, assumedly, of an individual. I hope, I hope this is somehow uh, understandable, but I hope that we can specify it a little bit more in the conversation, because this is all pretty abstract. fact.
0: Yes, definitely. We will get back to this many times, so no problem. Thank you very much for this. And Julian, what about you? So I actually asked you to suggest an article of your own, and then you didn't really, because instead you insisted on eset. Uh So maybe you can tell us something yeah, about that. Yeah, I,
2: I mean, I think this the, the her work is essential to everything that I've done, uh, basically. So I thought, Sometimes it's better to, to read the classics and to discuss these classics and the relevance of today. And then, of course, it's very easy for me to also talk about my own work in this slide. So what I would suggest to read about this uh, a podcast this is uh, uh, at least the concluding chapter of the of the book by Philomena Asset called Understanding Everyday Racism uh, um, which is um, well basically a little bit about Philomena Asset she uh, wrote her dissertation entitled Everyday Racism in the Amps- in, uh, University of Amsterdam in the 1980s and this received a lot of attention back in the day a lot of negative attention in particular where uh, people were not very uh, susceptible to you know, think along Uh, uh, along these kind of ideas that that racism is not only something explicit that you think about in terms of like the Ku Klux Klan and and people like being explicitly racist towards each other but actually that is something that operates in everyday life in a more much more implicit manner, manner or at least as implicit as you would like it to be you could also say so so uh, so, in, And in her work, and this is maybe also a reason why it wasn't uh, didn't receive such a warm reception at the time, the, the, the experiences of uh, people, uh, specifically uh, Black higher educated women, was central to the analysis. And uh, this also happened in an age of uh, statistics and people wanted to categorize people in, in, in those kind of ways. And here was a set who, who did this study completely focused on the experiences of these people themselves. Um, and I think, well, if you just read the conclusion of the of the 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 book that came after uh, Everyday Racism, called Understanding Everyday Racism, uh, I think uh, this uh, lays out this idea very well, that we should conceptualize racism as something uh, that happens in everyday life, that is part of what you could call common sense, and that uh, as sociology, uh, but also other sciences, being kind of a debunking discipline, it's important to think about this common sense and how, how uh, common it is and how it affects uh, everyday, uh, people's everyday life chances and experiences. Um, and, and what I also very much uh, uh, appreciate about this text is um, that she very much d- discusses how realities are defined by people or how reality is uh, uh, seen differently. And I think this also closely relates to text that uh, Amat suggested about um, how, how we view race uh, and ethnicity in everyday life um, and how this differs between people, right? So that is often a question of reality definition, uh, which is actually quite maybe unique to the study of, of race ethnicity. Um, so that's the first text and the second text or the recommended reading. Uh, by me and my co-author Pauke Berkes is called uh, maybe it's skin color, and actually that that quote was said in a hushed uh, way in my interview. So maybe it's skin color, um, uh, and that pretty much captures the uh, the the idea of that article is that I wanted to see uh, well, my studies focus on how uh, race and ethnicity play a role in um, in music reception and production which is often seen as something trivial, right? So many studies on race, ethnicity, focus on uh, what people see as very important topics in a uh, social life. So who mar- who marries who, who lives where, what kind of neighborhoods who uh, who gets treated for some kind of illnesses in hospitals and these kind of questions. Whereas with music, it is something that is something seen as just merely taste as entertainment, something that is not important uh, at all. Despite the fact that every kind of genre, any kind of music genre has a very strong history of racialization, either in the direction of whiteness or in the direction of blackness very often. Um, And uh, so my work focused focused on rock music in particular. So why rock musicians, uh, but also fans, uh, audiences are often white and often also white men despite the fact that rock music and the rock and roll experience is grounded in African-American men and women uh, who uh, who kind of started the genre and uh, so in this study I basically focus on how people pay attention to race ethnicity and also gender when they classify rock musicians so does it play a role Uh, uh, what kind of value do they attribute to it Uh, and uh, specifically how does authenticity play into this? So, how do people use race ethnicity to assign someone's authenticity uh, to uh, um, uh, to uh, say that they are valued as musicians or not? So, you could call it kind of a, a sociology of association.
0: Um. So. Before we continue to the central part, so the open discussion, there is always the fixed question, what surprised you most in the readings of this week? So, Ahmad, was there something that struck you in particular in any of the readings for this podcast?
1: Mm, so, on the one hand, what struck me is actually the, um, uh, there's a high level of communality in the the. the the, the multiplicity of race, one could say, right? So there are so many different sort of ways of doing differences and uh, and this was across the literature I would say for uh, for today. and that I find uh, well, maybe reassuring <laughs> because I, uh, well, I, I think I think this multiplicity is uh, is important and uh, and relevant and maybe there's that's also where the politics of race lies, right that it can be done in so many different ways. The, uh, but the second thing that surprised me simultaneously that i um so the the the, the paper of uh Abul Hajj and uh, my own paper are papers that really address of uh, what is race i so they try to open this up right to w- what kind of object or technology is this whereas uh, the other work of, obviously of uh, uh, philomena acid and but also of uh, you uh, julian and, and and your colleague um one could say that this category is taken for granted in one way or the other. So that that I find and uh, surprising. And this might be also an interesting issue for further conversation. Mm-hmm. So what happens when we uh, stop questioning, actually, what kind of category this is? And maybe use it as a social classification tool, right?
2: Yeah, I, yeah, I agree. I definitely want to talk more about that. But indeed, I also, uh, reading this literature, I thought what was really surprising, again, to me, is that we still... Uh, that uh, uh, race, ethnicity, racism are still very much questions of how reality is defined. This is something that I I think is in all the texts and maybe was kind of an unexpected, so it's like surprising communality that that all these texts basically ask this question, which then for us as researchers also... uh, uh, pushes us to question, like, how can we empirically understand race, ethnicity, and the consequences of these traits? Then, um, uh, and 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 I thought this was especially puzzling since we spend so much time on these topics and our attention is drawn towards it. As I thought was also really nicely demonstrated by this singular focus on this on the zero point one percent of difference in genomic backgrounds. So Have we? It, it just attracts all of our attention, so even though we talk so much about this, also in public media and, and popular culture and such, on the other hand, we still don't really know how to talk about it and what are the correct words, which is really puzzling and surprising, I think. And the second thing that I'd also thought was surprising, re- rereading uh, Seth's text in particular, is that i it's always still uncanny how how much of what she writes still reflects today's society and and even though that has been written in the 80s and 90s uh, which on the one hand shows kind of the continued relevance of her, of her work i think but it's also of course quite sad in terms of progression that you uh that we're kind of still uh, at the same uh, in the same state of things.
0: Yes. Yeah, that was also what struck me when rereading Essence. So I read it when I was a student a long time ago. And there are two things. So first of all, I remember it was very contested. Like everybody talked about her, like she was this crazy radical who was saying unthinkable things. And rereading it, I first think, well, this is extremely realistic, uh, well-argued, solid research, uh, not Polarizing yeah. at all, so I was so I was struck again by how how weird it is that something like this could be sort of framed as being very radical. And the other thing, and that is indeed ch- chilling and sad, is that you read it and you think, well, I, yeah, I think many people could tell exactly the same yeah, story I- today like the same sort of mechanisms, the same sort of, it's so recognizable.
2: I actually once had a a conversation with her right before uh, the original book, Everyday Racism, was uh, uh, revised and published again a couple of years ago. And then I also talked about this, and she said exactly the same thing, that she was revising her her 1984 book and, and realized that it actually needed little revision, which saved her lots of time. But on the other hand, it was also quite saddening indeed.
0: Yes. So there is still a lot of work to be done, I think here, not only uh, uh, academically or scientifically, but also socially. So the question I wanted to start with, so the central question is how is race done in practice? So how and how does this create uh, or perpetuate social inequalities? And the question I want to start with actually is the question about research. So about how to capture race, because as Julian also remarked, that really seemed to be at the heart of this uh, issue. And I think that also is something that sets it apart from other forms of inequalities, where indeed, when you talk about race, all of you also talk about the, the nature of reality in a much more um, acute way. Uh, than we see with any of the other uh, categories of inequality that we've talked in the podcast before. So what strikes me in both your work is that you both take what seems like a detour to get at race. Uh, So how did you get to take this detour, for instance, through forensics or through music? Uh, And what does this tell us about the workings of race that you sort of have to sort of first take a left turn Mm -hmm. to get there? I'm out. Yeah, so
1: it's uh, in my case, when talking about forensics specifically, it was both a detour and a way of um, getting at race head on, one could say, uh, because I saw a kind of a discrepancy. So there was a time when I was working in a forensic lab and we were doing, you know, the individual, of course, we, you know, we have to identify a suspect and you do this through individualizing him most, most of the cases. And, and at the same time, uh, we get a legislation uh, in, in our criminal code installing race as a biological category and saying that it should be OK to um, determine the race of the unknown suspect, suspect based on his DNA or her DNA. And so this was really like mind boggling and, and, and despite, so the, the disconsent of geneticists, you know, the, the, the minister of justice decided, well, that should be done. And he had his reason for that. We can discuss them and, uh, issues of consistency, actually, with with, uh, uh, article number one in our uh, constitutional (laughs) uh, uh, law that is there to protect people against racism. So, right. And, And so we have a definition, kind of a definition of what race is for that purpose, to protect people against racism. Now, that is mobilized as a way to introduce race in our criminal justice system and to say that it should be possible to identify a person by his Biological race, which I find really still very disturbing and very problematic. So, um, and and then I decided, well, let, let me then look further into this practice of forensic, where um, uh, the aim is to indeed find out about the identity of the unknown person, unknown suspect, uh, by determining the face of this suspect. So, and and one uh, practice is, is 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 genetics and uh, and, and genetic phenotype, as it is called, because you're after the phenotype of this unknown person. So his hair color, eye color, skin color, these kind of uh, things. But that is one practice. But other practices that were important to me are craniofacial reconstruction, often of deceased people, but also forensic composite sketching based on eyewitness accounts. So these are three different practices of face making, of producing a face that is to us, you know, the most individualizing feature of a person, right? You can mis- mistake a person for another if you look at his arms or legs or whatever, or height, but not by looking at uh, uh, his or her face. And and that was actually very productive by following the practice of, 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 of research, as well as forensics, as well as policing, uh, that are all aimed at producing this face of this one individual to then attend to, but, you know, how does the collective play into doing the individual? Because the idea is that, oh, no, it's not the idea, I think this is common, uh, both in the lab and outside the lab, that we cannot know the individual without placing the individual in a collective, a collective of man, of man of particular age, coming from a particular area of the world. So this is the way collectives are done in, for example, in genetic research. And by doing this ethnographically, studying ethnographically this practice of individualizing and how this individualizing goes hand in hand with producing this collective or deciding about this collective, you can then also try to trace in practice and while moving with the evidence, so to speak, when exactly this collective then becomes a racialized collective. So when it moves from, an, uh, let's say, a statistical category of population to become a white suspect or a suspect from sub-Sahara Africa or, you know, this, this kind of uh, uh, a translation work that is done. And, um, yes, and in this way, I think this, this taking this detour and a more painstaking, you know, uh, practice-oriented sort of research Um, is interesting because you can remain open to what race is made to be, right? So you don't need a definition, a strict definition of race to start with because it has the danger of, well, of of not finding it, you know, because, you know, the material does not really comply with it. But if you you remain open, um, you learn about new things. For example, how uh, 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 historical uh, scientific work might still be there in the lab and doing its work, uh, uh, you know, sedimented in certain protocols or in certain sample collections that are there, or uh, all of the sudden mobilized um, uh, as I I describe in in my article, you cannot uh, do this kind of genetic research on the face without um, um, taking 3D pictures um, of faces. Usually with an fMRI scan, uh, and you cannot understand these pictures of the face that you take with an fMRI scan without comparing these to the thousands of skulls that have been collected and studied by physical anthropologists and have been classified for us so, you know, nicely. And so they they are mobilized in this practice. They're folded in this practice that we see nowadays, and that that does not give away. It doesn't give away that. But if you study these. Practices, as I said, in a more meticulous way and working with the scientists, standing with them, talking to them, looking into their material, trying to understand that, you know, you need to go native to a certain extent. It might you might come up with surprising results then.
0: So the detour through practice yes. also is key in you. So I think that the, 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 the formulation that I borrowed from you, so how it is done in practice is actually an STS uh, approach. Which leads you to look at how things emerge or happen in everyday interactions. And it needs this sort of meticulous, but it's open-ended, so race sort of emerges from this uh studying, right? Rather than a predefined. So Yulian. So why the detour through music? Because it's interesting. So we have two very different fields, so mm-hmm. forensics and labs, and then we go to music, and these appear to be the key yeah. sites to find race.
2: Yeah, I think anyway. it's actually quite yeah. similar. It's really interesting to hear what Amat also, what her sort of reasoning behind this is. And I and I, I see how, how similar this is also to, to what I do, um, uh, because I can actually relate to the idea of kind of this unknown suspect, right? So that the face of the suspect becomes the representation of an entire group. Well, if if we move that to music, then of course, the the... The logic in in music to uh, to categorize different kinds of music as genre, and here we also see that often one kind of face uh, comes to represent the entire genre, and this very often uh, is racialized as well. So from the example that I've. Predominantly focused on Elvis Presley became the white masculine face of rock and roll music and all rock music uh, to follow, and and pretty much anyone else who would like to occupy that field is kind of benchmarked against him as the representation of that genre, and that means that that race ethnicity, but also gender, will always play a role in this process unless this this representation is is changed, right? Um, so uh, I think. This individualizing right of, of these of these uh, persons who are seen to be the most authentic uh, uh, representations of a genre, indeed, uh, uh, then come to decide what the collective should look like or what what is authentic within this collective. And this doesn't only go for who gets to be on stage but also in among audiences, right? So, uh, and this is what my studies particularly have been about how people in practice uh, like Amat as well make sense of race ethnicity or use this as input to organize uh, their taste, uh, to organize what they who they find authentic musicians or not but also who they find uh, relatable people in terms of taste. And uh, so um, for a one one a big example uh, that happened a couple of years ago was, for instance, um, the Lil Nas X, uh, this Atlanta rapper had this major hit with Old Town Road, uh, which was charted in the country charts because he, uh, according to him, uh, it was a country song. And then it was removed from the country charts uh, because the people behind those charts said, well, it's not country enough. Uh, even though in the past there were uh, white country musicians who were rapping in country songs and they were uh, agreed to be on the country charts. And only after Billy Ray Cyrus, the famous white country musician, was added to the song, uh, was he allowed to go back into the country charts. And and this was one of those situations where uh, where people were talking about that this may be racial, but it was really difficult to capture this. And I think the way that I approach race is just to go and talk to people, have interviews with them and then see whether they use any kind of ethno racial or gender cues to make sense of what they think is good or bad music or how they uh, associate people coming into a genre or a scene. Uh, And, and, and and this is kind of my, my detour, uh, which also doesn't necessitate a, a, definition of what race exactly is because it's all in the eye of the beholder and some people um, do not mention it at all uh, and and but many people do at least uh, kind of pay lip service uh, to these uh, two racial categories or ethno-racial categories as as a sense making mechanism
0: so if we look like, add, like this, at race in practice, as something that emerges when studying the world. What do we find out about the world? So what do you discover uh, about the world or about race, about inequality, once you sort of open up race in this way? Yeah, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm. gonna try to be brief because I think. <laughs> yes, I know it's a big no. question. So this is like explain your career and everything you've ever <laughs> <course>. written. But <laughs> just so. No, let and me just be very brief
1: about fun. it. I think yeah. what I find surprising, which is also in in that paper tentacular phases, is actually that this uh, assumed divide between contexts, say between science and society. Is really not there. You see, actually, how race is dependent on various different actors uh, to make it sort of um, gel, right? So, uh, uh, so this this idea of tentacular faces—that that these are wandering faces that require sort of um, uh, specification. Uh, this is partially it happens in the lab on the side of science, and partially it happens in society. So, this that the, the idea that this these open um, openness of the face the, the 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 compositeness of it that it is not very refined and very uh, very precise uh, that it is um, a virtue rather than a sin is an invitation to publics actually to mobilize their preferred categories of differences the ways of appreciating differences and to produce this composite thing that we then call the face of the suspect right and i found that actually very interesting uh, so the the uh, the The classical device that we tend to make as social scientists or as human beings, and they are interesting and important, of course, in certain settings and for certain purposes, uh, that you see that in this, uh, the the value of race is precisely to cross these borders and to um, then become something that does work in society, for better or for worse,
2: of course. Uh, well, I try to always approach it in in a sense that uh that race ethnicity will not play a role uh and I think that's that originally was one of my the the ways that I started doing my research that I thought, If race ethnicity indeed plays a role, then it will kind of naturally pop up in my research. And I do not have to push my research in that kind of direction. And indeed that proved to be uh, the case. Uh, But I think one of the ways that it pops up, and this is also what I find in uh, uh, Asad's work and actually also in the other articles that we are reading for this uh, podcast, is that, of course, uh, it works in different kind of directions. So initially, I was very much focused on processes of exclusion, right? That people who do not adhere Mm -hmm. to these uh, representational categories, uh, they are not seen as authentic and they're excluded from like a rock scene or they're excluded from the top 250 uh, of all time lists and these kind of things, uh, but of course it also works in the other direction. In rock music in particular, uh, there is hip-hop that is often kind of seen as diametrically opposed to that genre, where any kind of uh, non-whiteness, uh, especially in contemporary hip-hop, is, is used as a means to authenticate that kind of music. So it it kind of works in different kind of directions because race has different kind of traits in each uh, field. So in rock music, it has different uh, traits assigned to it than in in hip hop music. And this is something that kind of naturally came up that was really difficult to to grapple with because what I found out is that uh, one of the primary exclusion mechanisms that happened uh, in, in, for instance, white dominated music genres such as rock music, is that not so much uh, people who do not look uh, like white men are uh, actively excluded by uh, other, by white men in this scene for not being able to participate, but also from the home, uh, people who grew up in non-white milieus or especially in, in Netherlands, for instance, who had Surinamese backgrounds or Turkish uh, or Moroccan backgrounds, Uh, they were barred from the home outwards to not participate in kinds of music that were seen as white, right? So it kind of works in both directions. And and I think this is also something that is shown in the articles uh, that we read for uh, today, that um, um, race, of course, is a sense-making or uh, race ethnicity is used as a sense-making category for all uh, groups in society. Um, and this is something I think this makes it an even more difficult problem. Uh, but this is something that I try to also capture in my work. Uh, and, and that that seems to be kind of a, a red threat, you could say.
0: So I started thinking about race primarily or racism as a, me- as a sort of as a form of exclusion and inclusion indeed, or as a dimension of inequality. And actually reading your work and engaging with it more, it has more and more become to me like sort of more like it's like a very basic form mm-hmm. of sense making. Indeed, and I think that that pervades all domains. And Amat, I very often cite your work on racism, absent presence, uh, which is something you didn't mention here, but why, which I think is a very helpful way of like, it's, it's supposed to be not there, uh, but then um, it's a once you start, sort of once you're to it, it's really clear that it's a sort of a basic organizing mechanism or logic in so yeah. many places. And maybe even because it's so implicit, it's actually more effective than if it would have yeah. been uh, more. And I think that's a one. And once you start thinking about it in that way, it's actually, it's very difficult to, to, to not
2: see it. Yeah, maybe uh, if, if I can continue on that, uh, maybe that's also a reason why we tend to circle around it or we found a kind of way to circumvent it. That for Ahmad, that's looking at uh, genetics and how people also talk about this, but for me, that's, ins- for instance, more drawn from social psychology and cognitive sociology to to understand how people use certain categories in everyday life to make sense of what they see around them. And I think indeed that's uh, that that that's something of the last ten or twenty years uh, where we where we try to um, approach this from an interdisciplinary viewpoint and try to understand it uh, not as something that you can objectively grasp, but it's something that that uh, um, that you can only grasp if you, if you flip your way of looking at it, so to say.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, maybe in addition to that, I mean, I would say that it is not one coherent thing, even in a specific practice, that it is always, I mean, this is what uh, I learned from material semiotics, that it is often actually a couple of different elements that are stitched together right that there the might be color but it is done attan, uh, attached to uh, uh music or attached to uh, a specific genre attached to specific clothing you know issues So, so this 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 uh, this package and it comes of course in very different configurations i think is also um yeah adding to its potency and and and, and also this this uh ability or uh, art of disappearing and reappearing again because it keeps surprising us like you know we were not talking about race so where did this come from and and i think it has to do with that the the surprising connections that can be um that emerge and then then all of a sudden there's race or racism you know smell this is, this is something like uh, it, it usually you know we don't we don't really uh, take that on board as part of the the, the this configuration, but all of a sudden it it pops up and it makes you um, and and it's there very convincingly due to smell added to the to the rest
0: so this brings us to racism. So you already said it, Julian, because, of course, uh, we cannot really talk about race, we thought, without talking about racism. And Floriana, Ased, whose work we're reading today also coined the term everyday racism to capture the specific and subtle ways in which people are excluded and disadvantaged on the basis of racial categories. And your work, too, concerns not only race, but also racism. So it's always... Um, interconnected, so you can't really separate the two from each other. So how do you tackle racism in your work? And is this inevitably the consequence of race? Are they, by necessity, connected, Ahmad? Um, I find this really, really difficult
1: question. So uh, I think think it is a very difficult question. So how much can we take for granted about the histories of racisms and the way they are doing uh, uh, their work, um, or uh, uh, and therefore, can there be racism without a category of race, or does race really always have to be there in order to you know to um, mm-hmm. to speak of racism? So I'm 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 puzzled. I don't know. I don't know whether there whether there can be racism without race. What I do see is actually that race is. Is, is, is not something of a specific era or something of a specific kind of discourse or a specific kind of practices, but it is actually an imminent in society because of this capacity that we talked about, that it is not just, it cannot be reduced to one single thing. It's not just biology or not just a gene, but it is often this composite consisting of so many different elements that come in, into play. And of course, we can't leave our histories behind. So it is here and among us. So I tend to think that th- there is always this th- that race and racism go together, but probably in more, much more complicated ways than than a kind of causality or something uh, there. And then to um, so what then is, is 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 racism? I think racism, um, you know, as we saw in in the readings for today, for example, in the case of Nora, it is it is about uh, uh, reducing. Uh, um, an individual or necessarily putting in uh, taking an individual to be a representative of uh, a group and assuming that this, that many different kinds of qualities can be ascribed to this group on the basis of which you can exclude this group or deprive this group uh, uh, of, of, of things that are, well, your rights or, uh, uh, basic ways of, um, uh, of of relating to one another. So there is there is this, this group thing. There is the assumed quality of a group as a whole, and also there's necessarily always a kind of biological marker attached to this group whether it is your laughter in the case of Nora, your color, your, it is, it can be so many different things. Smell. We were talking about smell, you know, them that tend to eat garlics, you know, we were talking about, I don't know, Italy or Greece or Turkey or whatever. Uh, so we're not talking biology, but there's a kind of a, um, physical bodily, uh, uh, marker added to this, uh, to the mix.
2: Yeah. So, uh, I think I approached it uh, I'm completely similar as, as Seth, I think I approached it uh, th- sort of by reconfigurating racism uh, from the uh, kind of original between exclamation marks, original version of kind of explicit racism towards something uh, that means that people use uh, what they perceive as ethno-racial differences to make sense of what they see in everyday life. So how they use this or not use this in processes of categorization and classification. And that's what you can call, according to my sort of definition, uh, racism, that people use this as information to make classifications about something that is essentially not related to race or ethnicity, right? So they make a musical classification based on seeing differences in skin tone, right? And that that uh, what happens then is for instance, they they see a, Uh, black vocalist and then they will say things like oh it's uh, he will sound very soulful or he must have a history of like this x music genre x or y uh, which is not necessarily in any of the sounds any of the musical cues that you hear but it's just about the fact that people use this seeing the skin tone as information to make an evaluation about music or Mm -hmm. about you know someone's place in that music uh, and I think that's how I try to approach it, and that's also how how I find it. That also means that I find many of these kind of cases, which a would call everyday racism, where it would be completely senseless to look at, to, to, to look for like the perpetrator, to look for like the bad per, the bad racist person saying these kind of things, because that also means that I approach it in the sense that people are socialized or or enculturated into using this kind of information to make sense of of musical genres. Because this is what has been shown on TV, this is what they heard on radio, this is what their friends and parents told them uh, over life. So it also makes sense that they use this kind of information in their sense-making of music. But this is not to say that it's not racist, right? It's still uh, using these categories to make sense of something that is really not uh, associated with race ethnicity. So this is how I I find it. And I also find it actually in the cases of anti-racism. So this is of course, Actually, the only way that I find it in a very explicit way is that there's always in any kind of research that I've done in this kind of category of doing research, there's always a group of people who who uh, pose themselves very much as anti-racist. And they, of course, see race ethnicity everywhere and use it in very explicit terms as well. So that's also how I find it. So for
0: both of you, so how do these definitions of racism that you just um gave, how are they related to the sort of more everyday commonsensical understandings of racism? So it's not the same, right? Because that's there in, in everyday conversation, it tends to be a word that, you know, when you use it, people immediately freeze. So it has, it, well How, I,
2: I remember that uh, once reading that racism, the word racism, and this is especially also related to the discussion about black peat that we have here in the Netherlands, uh, not so much anymore actually, but the last couple of years are very uh, uh, in very heated ways, where this was also the main point of discussion. They said people, these activists said black peat is racism uh, and this was seen as an attack. On kind of uh, within explanation mark decent people who who are not racist, but of course the sociological or anthropological understanding of of this racism would mean no, it's not that you're Ku Klux Klan like racist. It just means that you know race is used uh, to make sense of the world, and this is uh, and this has a negative consequences for marginalized groups. Right, and that's that's why it's called racism. Um, uh, but uh, i remember reading that it was defined as a concept creep that uh what once was known as as you know this kind of explicit racism now covers much more but of course uh not everyone is com- uh, immediately on board on a new definition of, of a word that we've been using for for decades so uh i think that's the uh the consequence
1: no i think i think this was perfectly uh good actually it's just but at the same time, I do I do find it important to keep on talking about racism and also, to, uh, you know, to see this also as our task, you know, to make, to articulate much better and much more suitable to certain situations uh, uh, what then the relevance of that term there is and why it is important to, to mobilize it. So to, to go beyond the sensitivities that people may have and to try to take away the you know the the, the 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 personal pressure that is put on uh, on individuals, and to say, well, you know, there is there is some some good work that can be done with it.
2: Yeah, and I think actually when you read, uh, you just refer to the story of Rosa, and right? that yeah. uh, Yes,
0: uh, that, I called her Nora, but Rosa. Yeah, no, yeah. Ro- Rosa. Yeah. To, to explain for the people who maybe have not read the readings yet, which is possible. So in the book, by Filomena, as said, there is also one long chapter which is tells the story of. Uh, a Dutch Surinamese woman who is a doctor and so explains the different forms of everyday racism that she is confronted yeah. with. And it's a very, so it's a very, Uh, convincing a long catalog of the very small things like, for instance, Amad already referred to she laughs too much and that makes her too Surinamese and she sees racism everywhere and that makes her difficult. So it's a sort of very more or less subtle, but at least everyday mundane things that make her uh, life more difficult.
2: Uh, Yeah, and thank you for providing the proper introduction to that text, because I think indeed it was an omission from my side. But what I thought was so uh, striking about that text is that some of the experiences that uh, Philomena gives about Rosa uh, that are in the book seen as everyday racism, I thought would now be seen as very explicit racism. Right. So this is maybe something that you could see as kind of uh, uh, the progression of this concept. Right. That I was reading these examples, particularly the, about the teacher who was talking about this Turkish uh, uh, um, uh, person. For the, for the yeah. listeners, uh, the, there's this uh, anecdote in the book where she talks about being in a lecture hall with this uh, professor who was talking about uh, surgery of uh, uh, someone who was wounded at the uh, job in the fac- in factory work, I think. And he, he talks in very negative ways uh, about this uh, Turkish migrant who is working here and what a loss it would be to Dutch society if this person can't work anymore and all this kind of ideas uh, that if you would, if you read them today, like I did now, I thought now. Today, this would be seen as very explicit racism. If any of this would get out like on Twitter, then there would be immediately uh, repercussions for this professor. And this does show, of course, that that there has been a change because in the book, it's more seen as kind of something that's implicit. That's kind of everyday. Uh, so in that sense, there has been progression in 30 years, maybe, in terms of at least you know, pointing to racism when we see it. So, so
0: because... As said is so clear that knowledge will help us, which I think is a very interesting. So I think that's also one of the claims of the book, right? That knowledge about racism actually helps people to see what's going on and possibly also to, to combat it, but also to sort of maintain their um, mm-hmm. self-respect. I think it's also for a personal development. I think that also brings me to the final question that I have, which is about the role mm-hmm. of researchers. Uh, so if knowledge is important, then what is the role of people like you uh, who know about race and who can provide different understandings about racism? So how do you see your uh, uh, mission? So, of there?
1: course, I think knowledge is not, of course, is not reducible to, say,
0: academic or scholarly knowledge, right? So it's, no, 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 not at all. Everyday knowledge. No, it's very clear. No. <laughs> No, no, it's very clear. So it's very clear in Philomena's book that knowledge is is very grounded in experience very much grounded in experience, but I think but maybe we can help too. Yes, of course. Of course. Of course. as academic and i
1: think also uh, and this is why i don't know about you Julianne, but i find this topic of race very demanding so uh, and it is also you know you feel the kind of responsibility so it is a responsabilization sort of object of research uh, that you you need you cannot you cannot remain silent you have to say something and this both in 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 our work so i i think in in the way i see my task in academia is really to to ask the more difficult questions to try to remain also open to this thing that is called race. You know, I once even presented a paper that was called uh, uh, caring for race in the sense of, you know, how can we remain open to where this object came from, how it has changed, what it is doing to us now in multiple ways in order to understand this politics. So there's, there's a kind of Uh, responsibility to this object that is also uh, impacting us you know affecting us in particular way so uh, and and of course this is not a good position for uh, for a scientist a social scientist to start with you know if you are too uh, primed in a particular way and this is also what you do uh, Julian you you go open in the field you know and 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 just you know well let it come whatever it is that uh, and I think this is really very very important so to be open, maybe generous toward this object in our academic work. But at the same time, we also have a role in society. And I think it is not um, uh, an accident that both Julian and I are uh, vocal (laughs) outside of academic uh, uh, settings, right? Because I I am really happy that we are finally discussing these uh, um, thorny issues. Uh, um, However, you know, they can be polarized sometimes and sometimes uh, less. So I'm happy that we're doing this in society and I feel that we have uh, a mission there to to contribute, uh, sometimes nuance, sometimes maybe fuel uh, the situation a bit or stir uh, stir the debate up a little bit. So I think that's, uh, yeah, it's it's a very demanding sort of topic of research.
2: (laughs) Yeah, I completely agree. Uh, And so... Yeah, I, I've thought a lot about this, of course, uh, doing this kind of research, you have to think about this because you get all kinds of responses uh, from all different sides of society on on whether you should do this work or whether you whether you do it uh, in, a, in the right way, according to all kinds of people. And of course, to me, I, I'm a white man, so I always have to also... Uh, think about this and talk about this uh i'm one of the things that i realized very soon in starting even thinking about this kind of topic that i'm never going to like explain what racism is to people who are not white like me because usually kind of this lived experience uh is already enough to know much more about it maybe than i do but on the other hand i also bumped into Kind of uh, this this notion of the importance of having lived experience in something, and that I also saw what I also saw happening is that um, that the uh, assumption was often that if you uh, uh, if you are in any way a person of color for instance and working in sociology, then you must probably work with uh, on inequalities and such which and it was never expected of me as a white man and i and so I said, well, actually, I want to understand how this works uh, and then I got sort of flack from two sides on the one hand saying well, uh, why are you interested in that? Because it doesn't really affect you. And on the other hand, it was also, uh, uh, I also got flagged from the position of why do you study something that you don't have lived experience in? Why don't you let, you know, other people of color do that instead. Like, why do you take that position? And I thought, well, first I want to understand how whiteness operates and I'm a white man. So I'm, I'm kind of in that lived experience. But on the other hand, and this is something that I also learned from Philomena. Like if we stop to try and place our, ourselves into other person's shoes if we if we stop to if we always say that you can only have valid sort of knowledge of experience if you have lived experience in it then of course this will only increase polarization and this will only increase the like the balkanization of of uh, thinking about this and i think this is something that i really want to do beyond academia as well that i want to make sure that we keep these conversational lines open uh, and and that we uh, and actually by means of talking about something like music uh, uh, which to people is something positive and something that they love talking about and thinking about uh, opening up this conversation about race ethnicity so I think that's kind of how I have kind of found a role in the in all of this
0: uh, so before we leave to think about this there is the final question so what's can't you let go this week? So, what will stay with you after this conversation that you will think about? Yeah, Maria. I think
2: to me uh how important it is to to approach this from an interdisciplinary viewpoint. And I think this is more often said than actually done. And I think uh this is something that I really want to advance as well and and, and think about uh, what what Dennis Noble calls the, the middle out position that you should always approach your own discipline as one starting point but that you should immediately branch out to the, to the disciplines around you. And I think, uh, especially the articles on, uh, the, the role, the uh, the racial thinking and genetics really, uh, just made me a little bit more fundamentalist about this, about this idea. (laughs) (laughs) So
0: so, Ahmad, what will stay with you after this? I think two things. I
1: think the, the the observation that we made about what has changed since the eighties, you know, through uh, Philomena's work. So what what remained the same and what has changed, and um, so the more I think I think it is the more the uh, the vision for more institutional aspects of racism, and so uh, determining what can be done or said or what not. Um, and the other is really the question that you posed to us the relation between race and and racism that is, as I said, this is a very, very difficult question and and I think that will be resonating in my head for a while now
0: (laughs) Yes, so thank you for giving that
1: to us (laughs)
0: Yo, thank you. So what will stay with me, too, is I think most strikingly your insistence that uh, racism is a word that we need to keep using, even in academic thinking, uh, even though it's so fraught. Uh, because I so personally I have the, the my first response very often is try just to use another word if you want to get across to people because people will behave so strangely when you talk about racism, that that conversation are blocks. And you actually both of you convinced me that it is important to keep using this word. So that is something that indeed also will stay with me because i'm I've really changed my mind about this in the course of this conversation. Um, so thank you so much for a wonderfully inspiring conversation. Uh, there were many more questions, but uh, I'm sure we will find another way. Thank you so much, and thank you everyone for listening to this podcast episode with Ahmad Macharik and Julian Schap on race, racism, and racialization. Thanks.